Welcome to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. If you're an athlete, coach, or sports fan driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our free monthly magazine at faithdrivenathlete.org. We'll compile the best videos, articles, and resources written by athletes across the country and bring them to you once a month. This podcast, of course, doesn't exist without you, our community. So while you're on the site, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you, any questions that you might have for our guests. The way I see it is that I want to engage and bring people together, but I also want to engage with truth. There's a lot of anger and there's a lot of hurt. I want people to have empathy and see why people are hurting, even if they don't agree with it. And so ultimately, I wrote that post about being encouraged because as believers, the gospel informs how we view the world. It doesn't mean that we don't see what's really happening. It doesn't mean that we neglect facts. It doesn't mean that we aren't hurt and upset because injustice occurs. What it does mean is that we know a God who can correct all of those things. And it also means that whenever we enter into this, we need to enter into these types of issues with truth and with humility, with grace and truth. Just like Jesus came, it says that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. We need that same grace and truth when we enter into these types of issues. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. Today's episode features a Super Bowl champion. And while his NFL career is illustrious, it's what Benjamin Watson has done off the field as both an author and a leader that we'd like to tell you about. He's written two books, Under Our Skin, which addresses the racial divide in America, and The New Dad's Playbook, which is a must-read for any father with a newborn. He's known for speaking truth and saying that tough things need to be said in the moment in a way that few can. Someday, I wouldn't be surprised to see the words senator or governor in front of his name. Let's listen in on our conversation with Benjamin Watson. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Athlete Podcast. We've got a special guest today. Uh, We have Benjamin Watson with us, and it is not Ben, if you're wondering. It is Benjamin, and that's a big deal for me. My oldest son is Benjamin, and he's not Ben. He's Benjamin as well, and we've been able to track Benjamin Watson's football career over the time of the last dozen or so years with my three teenage boys. And so it's a special treat for me as a dad and as a sports fan to have Benjamin Watson with us today. So Benjamin, thank you very much for joining us. You don't need much introduction, but we're super, super grateful that you'd make time for us today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And um, your son has a great name for sure. He does. He does. I'll tell him that. Thank you very much. So we've got to ask you about the most recent news, of course. After 15 years, 200 games, and a Super Bowl you just announced your retirement from the NFL. What went into that decision, and what made now the best time to step down? Well, it's always a tough decision to stop doing something that you've been doing for most of your life. I mean, for me, football has always been a goal, even since I was a little kid, to be able to play in college and then to be fortunate enough to continue my career into the NFL. So, you know, you know it's going to end at some point. You just don't know when. But I think that, you know, after so many years and injuries and and all those things have to pile up. The family has grown a lot since the beginning and we moved around quite a bit and we just have a desire to kind of slow down and see where we're going to plant roots and see what's next. It really is a young man's game. And the older you get, the more you realize that. (laughs) 
<laughs> that while you can compete on Sundays, the injuries, the surgeries, all those things start to accumulate over time and the day-to-day gets a lot tougher. So a combination of several different things for us, it was, you know, as a family, just feeling like it was time, physically feeling like it was time, and also mentally and spiritually and emotionally feeling like, you know, I think it's time for us to find out what the next chapter is along this journey we call life. Yeah. So you lead the Patriots. Seems like Tom Brady follows right behind you. What's 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 going on there? It sounds like Tom didn't like the idea of being quarterback without you there. I guess that's what it was. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he he did lead, which was a shocker to a lot of us. Uh, I guess a lot of us fans. Yeah. Uh, for me and the guys in the locker room, look, he was coming up on the end of his contract. He hadn't signed a new one, an extension, and so there's always a possibility. Look, in the NFL, there's always a possibility that someone's going to to not be there the next year. That's just the nature of the business. In fact, when you look at life in general, nothing lasts forever. And just like the seasons, we come and we go and life goes on. And so as an athlete, you, you understand that NFL means not for long. The problem is when you're a guy like Tom who's played for 20 years and no one can imagine you being somewhere other than where you've been. And so I think that's why you see kind of the shock for a lot of people because you're talking about generations of fans who have watched him play in that uniform. But as I got to sit by him this year and, and get to know him even more than the first time I was there, I'm just really happy for him and for his family. I mean, this is something that he obviously wanted and it was the right time for them to move on. It was the right move for their family. Really considered. He's very, very thoughtful. He doesn't really do anything on impulse. And so for him to make this type of a change I definitely believe that, that it was just the right time. And so that doesn't change anything that he's done in New England. Look, he's still going to get a parade anytime he lands at Logan Airport. <laughs> so yeah. so that, that's not going to change. But uh, it is a new chapter for him, and I'm excited to watch it unfold. So you played, you've played with him. you played with Drew Brees, of course. you played under Sean Payton and under Bill Belichick. I mean, those are four of the most amazing names ever in the NFL. What's it like playing at that high of a caliber in a game that you have loved? Some of the best teammates, some of the very best coaches. You know, football is the ultimate team sport. And the reason for that, obviously, is because it is a beautifully violent game, (laughs) uh, which makes it great. But it requires everyone to work together in a way that's really unique amongst any other sports. And also, you know, when you talk about the amount of people that it takes to put out a successful product on the field, meaning to win games, it's more than simply a quarterback or an offensive line or D-line or a great coach. It's everybody working together and everybody understanding what they do best and then doing that to the best of their ability on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And that's what I learned from those four names. Those four names, like you said, are for the greats to ever be associated with the game of football. And their greatness they would tell you is part, obviously, their commitment to their craft, but also it's the ability to encourage other people to be the best of their craft while they're in cohort with them yeah. and while they're all working together. And, you know, I learned from all of them, and I was inspired by all of them in different ways, and I was challenged by all of them, and some of them made me mad sometimes. <laughs> but it was all to get better at football, and so I'm very appreciative to have crossed paths with all those guys. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing career. And I think that my sense having followed your career is that they're all reflecting about the fact that they got to play with you as well and how you made them better. If we could, looking back at your time before the NFL, 
When did the gospel become real to you, and how has that grown through your career and into your life as a parent? Yeah, the gospel became real to me. I'll say this. My earliest memories I can remember knowing about the gospel. I can remember knowing or learning in church in Sunday school and going to vacation Bible school and, you know, just seeing my father and my mother uh, involved with ministry very early on. I remember my grandmother and going to her church and all those sorts of things. So the gospel was a part of my life before I became a, a believer. It was there. So I was very aware of it, but I didn't be- become a Christian until I was still early on in life. I was a child. I was around six or seven years old when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But I always knew that this was a decision that I had to make. And I got no credit or brownie points for being the son of a preacher. Like my dad used to always say, just because you put your head in the oven, it'll make you a biscuit. Like just because you go to church, <laughs> it doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you go yeah. in the garage, it'll make you a vehicle. Yeah. So being in church, I, I knew was important. And I enjoyed going to church. I enjoyed being with my friends at church. And, you know, I didn't enjoy going to church every single day. You know, some some of us grew up in those churches where we went twice, three times a week. And that got to be a drag sometimes as a kid when you wanted mm-hmm. to go somewhere else. But I also knew that just going there wasn't it. So the Lord called me, the Holy Spirit, you know, drew me to himself at a very young age. And because of that, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that he drew me very early. And with that, it allowed me to have a very early understanding of my own sin mm-hmm. and where I fall short. And it would leave a really, really bad taste in my mouth when I would do or say something that I shouldn't. And I'm grateful for that conscience. And I think as a parent, you know, fast forwarding, you know, that was years ago. So now I'm, you know, 39 years old and, you know, we have seven kids. I've been married for 15 years. And the gospel it influences, or really not even influences, but it instructs everything we do as people, as believers. Uh, the gospel is what tells us how to be a proper husband. It's what informs our worldview. It informs how we engage the culture. It informs how we respond to our children, how we lead them and love them and discipline them. It informs the things that we value and the things that we consider to be important enough to have conversations about them around the dinner table or the breakfast table. It informs how we live our private lives and informs how we confess and ask for forgiveness to our family because we know that there's a standard that is outside of what mommy and daddy simply think is the right thing to do. And so, you know, the gospel is the driving force with everything we're involved in, whether you are an entrepreneur, whether you're an athlete, you know, whether you're a teacher whether you're in some sort of service industry or whether you're in public service and you're in leadership, it doesn't matter. You know, as believers, the gospel speaks to all of those areas and to all of those branches of our lives are informed by it. So Benjamin, talk a little bit specifically how the gospel informed your work in your career in the locker room. What was that like? How was it received from other teammates? Well, people ask that question a lot. People a lot of times ask, you know, are there any Christians in the NFL? And I say, well, are there any Christians at your job? And they're like, well, yeah, a couple. I said, well, it's the same way in the NFL. It's just a job. (laughs) You know, football is just a job. You you get a paycheck like everybody else, and our job is to go perform on the field and on the practice field. And so there are believers there, a lot of very strong believers. And there are guys that could care less about the gospel, guys that are anti-Christian, just like anywhere else. But it's always informed how I work. When I was young, my dad would always tell me about Colossians 3.23, about working wholeheartedly for the Lord and not for men. And 
while I can't say that that was always my goal, my motivation when I was working, he put that little treasure in my heart and I always carried it. So I was always a hard worker. And I believe that part of my working hard had to do with the fact that I wanted to be honorable with the talents that I had given. I wanted to hone those abilities to the best of my ability, not only for myself, because that's part of it. I had goals that I wanted to achieve, but also because I believe God had put me in a position to play the sport that I wanted to play at Duke University, at University of Georgia. When I got into the league, I always would pride myself on, you know, working hard because you know that people are watching you. God wants us to do our work with excellence. And the challenge that we face or really the minefield that we have to be aware of is as human beings, we have a works righteousness muscle that pumps very, very hard, as hard as our heart. And if we aren't careful how well we perform, we believe will be a reflection upon our value and our dignity And we'll also take pride in it as if we did it all by ourselves. And so the balance there is understanding that God is the one who gives us all that we have. In the book of Jeremiah, it talks about God being the God. It says, let not the wise man, you know, boast in his wisdom or the rich man boast in his riches or the strong man boast in his strength in Jeremiah chapter nine. And so what it's saying is that, look, you may be strong, you may be wise, you may be wealthy, but God's the one who did all of that. So how dare you boast in it as if you did it for yourself? So as an athlete and in the locker room, that's some of the things that I carry with me. And also, you know, as an athlete, you understand that you do have a certain amount of influence. We all have a certain sphere of influence that we are responsible for. And for me, mine is the locker room, especially as I got older in my career. You know, when I'm sitting there with Tom Brady, you know, next to me in his locker and he's 43 and I'm 39, they look at us like we're ancient. So, so we... We have these old people conversations that the young guys can't get involved with. But with that comes an amount of responsibility to speak life and truth into their lives and also to hold ourselves to that same standard. And so whatever your mission field is, whether it's the boardroom or, you know, the classroom or wherever, for me, the locker room, there's a tremendous opportunity there to to tell people about the Lord to show them with how you live, to tell them with the words that come out of your mouth, to challenge people, to to be very, I guess, uh, aware and you know, seeking opportunities to speak truth in a world that is definitely going the opposite direction. And that's how we try to approach my career. And, and now being married, you know, it's bigger than me. You know, it's also, you know, my wife, Kirsten, and anytime she gets to engage with, you know, we have couples Bible studies or the women have their Bible studies or we have ours, you know, there's, we're trying to sow seeds that will produce fruit. And we may not see that from the couples, but you never know two years, three years down the line, we're, we're out of the league three years. And there's a couple that is leading because they may have heard something that one of us said three years prior. You know, I love how you're talking about how the gospel informs every area of our life. And, you know, that's true if we're in the workplace or the locker room or wherever it might be that God has us. Take us back a couple of years because the gospel certainly informs so many areas of our lives, but yet some of those areas people are reluctant to talk about. But years ago, you dove right into an issue with race and just a big conversation that's been there in our country. And I was just incredibly struck by the way that you presented the issue in a winsome way and really really just spoke some truth in a time when our country was needing it. What brought that about for you and what inspired you to sit down and, and write the book that came after? 
Well, the book was Under Our Skin, Getting Real About Race and Getting Free from the Fears and Frustrations that Divide Us. But the book was an unpacking of simple Facebook posts that I wrote about my emotions following the events that happened in Ferguson, Missouri, with the officer and with the young black man who was killed and, and all of the unrest that happened during and after the grand jury decided not to indict the officer. And so, like many other Americans, I've been watching these things happen, and we all have our <clears throat> ideas about how it played out, even when we don't have footage. But it was a very, very emotional time, and I just wrote about being angry and being sad that someone lost their life, and also about being introspective, because when it comes to prejudice, we all carry some in some respects, but also being um, hopeless, because it seems like when it comes to race in this country, which, you know, you go back, chattel slavery started in the late 1600s and then until the late 1800s. But then after that, you had a series of other things that we had to deal with when it came to oppression in this country. And you just hear these stories over and over again and being hopeless to feel like we've come a long way, but just realizing that we have so much further to go. But then also on the flip side, being hopeful that we have made this progress. And so I think that part of entering into that conversation was just, a burden that I felt to find solutions and to bring people together. I've a lot of times looked at myself as somewhat of a bridge. My experience in my life has been one of being in public school and private school. I've been in white churches and black churches. I've been in a university like Duke University. I went to University of Georgia. I've lived in you know Virginia. I've lived in the South. I've lived in the North. You know, now in Boston, I've lived in different areas of the country. I've been around different types of people. I've been around people who consider themselves to be, like I mentioned before, in a locker room, atheists. I've been around people who are, you know, they grew up in the church their entire life. And so I think that the way I saw it and the way I see it is that I want to engage and bring people together, but also want to engage with truth. There's a lot of anger and there's a lot of hurt. I want people to have empathy and see why people are hurting even if they don't agree with it. And so ultimately I wrote that post about being encouraged because as believers, the gospel informs how we view the world. It doesn't mean that we don't see what's really happening. It doesn't mean that we neglect facts. It doesn't mean that we aren't hurt and upset because injustice occurs. What it does mean is that we know a God who can correct all of those things. And it also means that whenever we enter into this, we need to enter into these types of issues with truth and with humility, with grace and truth. Just like Jesus came and said that he came from the Father full of grace and truth. We need that same grace and truth when we enter into these types of issues. And so writing under our skin was really part telling a little bit about my experience with race and my father, my grandfather, I include them as well, but also encouraging white Americans to really lean in and to listen to their black counterparts when they're saying, look, we feel like we are profiled. We feel like this is happening. This is why I'm angry because of this law that's happened, because of redlining that's happened, because of being neglected from not receiving this or that or whatever it may be. These are the facts. And then it's important for those on the other side, for black Americans to say, look, not every white person is out to get you. Not every white person even understands the gravity of what's going on. And trying to bridge that gap, it's really trying to get people to walk in other people's shoes. So that was the main point. And then with that, after we get to that point, my goal is to correct what's wrong. 
Preston, my wife, and I, I think God's really impressed upon us the last several years, just this idea of justice. And to me, justice comes in a lot of different forms, a lot of different faces. And one of them is obviously what we talk about when we talk about racial justice, but there's also abortion. That's an injustice. There's also sex trafficking. That's an injustice. There's also the way many of us treat women. That's an injustice. The list goes on and on. And I believe that God wants us to be ministers of reconciliation, first reconciling to him and then to each other. And that's kind of been what our mission is. And that's, that was a reason, really, I think, now looking back in retrospect uh, for the book. And that's what I hope that people uh, glean from it. So I want to jump in one more thought on that, Benjamin, before we move on to something else. But just talk to us a little bit. You're talking about division. And we're recording this in the middle of a a time of crisis here with our country, and most of us are in some form of shelter in place or staying close to our home. And normally in these times of national events, it seems like it brings us together as a nation. But this one seems a little bit different. And not to say that it's without hope and there's not other stories, but it seems like we're still stuck in this red, blue, left, right, some of the things that divide us. How would you take some of the things that you learned walking through the division and the injustice and apply it to what we're going through today? Um, it does feel that way. It does feel that part of the reason, I think, part of what makes this difficult is that we're unable to be face-to-face with each other. This is actually promoting us being in our silos. Now, that's not inherently wrong because, you know, obviously with the virus going around, not being around someone who's infected is quite helpful for your health, but it does allow us to kind of stay in our corners and only watch the news that affirms our belief, or only look at the Twitter feeds that affirm what we believe, instead of saying, you know what, there's a lot we just don't know. And one thing that I've been learning when it comes to race, and when it comes to different opinions about racial topics, is that a lot of us just don't know. And even if you think you know, try entering into a conversation or try doing some research on your own and just see what's out there. Because you may be surprised that what you thought you knew, you didn't really know. There's a lot of knowledge that men think they have that they really don't. And I think that applies to where we are now. There's a lot of misinformation. And look, I don't know all the answers when it comes to COVID-19. I don't claim to. But I do know there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of finger pointing going on that is not helpful for the time right now. It will be helpful at some point when we get through this. But I don't see what it helps us right now, especially if we don't have all of the information, we don't have all the facts to even make those declarations. So that would be the main thing that I would apply. You know, the second thing is just kind of an overarching idea of understanding that, you know what, as much as we try, this world is never going to be perfect. And in this world, we're going to have trials, we're going to have tribulation, sin is in this world. And so there's going to be racism, there's going to be sexism. Doesn't mean we don't fight it. It doesn't mean we don't do everything we can to correct it and call it out. And it'd be people who would live beyond that and above that. It doesn't mean we don't confess it. But it does mean that until Jesus comes back, there's going to be some of that in the world. And even when I look at this virus, that's just indicative of the world. It's just indicative of life on earth. And it's not good. It's terrible. It's painful. It, it frustrates you. It makes you angry because... You think that everything is in your control and that you're taking your vitamins and, <laughs> and you're doing this, you're doing what's right. And then all of a sudden everything is shut down because of a virus and it can be very, very frustrating. But it's just a reminder that this world is not our home. 
is reminded that this place is flawed, as beautiful as our homes may be, and as secure as we think we are in our money and our jobs and everything else that keeps us warm at night, it can be gone in an instant because this is not our home and this world will never fully, fully satisfy us. It's only until we get beyond this place that everything will be perfect. It just won't be perfect here. And, you know, this virus just really reminded me of that, that, you know what, even in America, as great as she is, she still is able to fall to the same viruses and the same tragedies as any other place in the world that we sometimes look at as a lesser place. We're all in this thing together and living on this planet has its sadnesses and has its sickness. Benjamin, I'd love to give you a chance to share a little bit about your newest project, Divided Hearts of America. Uh, what's the movie about? When can we expect it to release? And why should people go see it? Yeah, well, Divided Hearts of America is uh, actually my first foray into filmmaking. Um, it's a documentary, full-length documentary, about the issue of abortion in America. And the idea for it, really the impetus behind it, was last year, and over the last, I would guess, year and a half, there have been several different laws that have been enacted by legislative bodies across the country, the state, governments, governors, most of them about reproductive health or abortion, however you want to term it. But there seems to be some sort of, you know, a ramping up. And I think the conversation is getting even more intense than it has been in recent years. And so about a year ago, I was just thinking about how could I get involved with this? My wife and I have been involved in different ways with pregnancy centers and supporting women as well as their children and their fathers uh, when it came to unplanned pregnancies and, you know, always encouraging life, but understanding that it's important to care for mothers and fathers and not just for the unborn child. Um, and so the idea of doing this documentary kind of came about. I met with, with a small group of filmmakers and, you know, we decided we're going to do this. So Divided Hearts of America is scheduled to come out later this year. Um, COVID-19 is messing everything up. <laughs> but uh, later this year in 2020, this full-length film. And in the journey, it's kind of my journey, discovering the truth about abortion, what it is, who it affects, how we got to this place, who are the key figures in getting us here and what will happen if we don't address this issue. So I interview about 30 to 40 different voices in the fields of academia, medicine, politics. We spent a couple of days on Capitol Hill, spoke to some different senators about the issue, faith leaders. And then also I thought it was important to engage some people who didn't agree because, again, going back to the idea of empathy and, and understanding, it's important to hear everybody's point of view, whether we agree with it or not. I think the why behind what people believe is vitally important, not only to solidifying our own convictions, but also understanding how to speak with people who don't agree with us and showing some sort of compassion. And so it's really my journey just asking the questions about what exactly is this? Do women, is there a right to have an abortion? Should there be a right to have an abortion? What should we do to protect children? Why should we even protect them? When does life really begin? Those are some questions that I really answer in this documentary. And we're in post-production now, so we've done all the interviews. We're in post-production now. We are putting together these different areas of the film. And I'm really, really excited about it because I think that it's going to be, it's going to be very powerful for people of all convictions, really just to yeah. hear these voices of those who are most directly affected and involved in abortion. I can't wait to see it. And you hit on something there that you also talked about on the race issue as well, which is looking at different perspectives 
and so that each side might be able to understand what each other is thinking. And yet, of course, you very much have a view on the sanctity of life. But I don't know that there's been as balanced of a review of that on both sides of the issues so that people can come together with some appreciation and perspective of what the other one brings to the table. Yeah, I was actually at the Supreme Court about a month ago for uh, the oral arguments in a case concerning uh, abortion law in Louisiana. And there were protesters outside, you know, some pro-life, some pro-choice, all outside the Supreme Court. My first time going to the court and never being actually in the court and witnessing something like this. It really was incredible. But before it, I was walking around outside the court and I saw three women who had on shirts that said, you know, I knew that they were pro-choice. They came to protest against the pro-lifers or, you know, you can look at it any way you want to look at it, but they were protesting against what, what was what they thought was an attack on uh, an infringement upon their rights. Mm-hmm. And I engaged them in conversation, didn't tell them which way I stood um, until a little later in the conversation. And they were kind enough to keep on talking to me. <laughs> and um, I just asked them, you know, what, what are some of the things that frustrate you about people who call themselves pro-life? And they said some things that we've heard before that, you know, they only care about the babies, they don't care about, you know, women that are in poverty and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I, I said, you know, that that's true. There are some of those things. I said, is there anything that could change your mind when it came to this? Two of the women said, no, there's nothing that could change their mind. And and then one of the women said, yes, I, I think if, if those people spoke to us like human beings and had a little more empathy and understood, you know, why we believe, why we believe, at least I would want to engage in in a conversation. Wow. Um, and so, look, that's not everybody. Obviously, yeah. two of the women said, you know, there's nothing that'll change my mind. And they kind of looked at her kind of funny when she said that. Yeah. But I think she was speaking from a place of feeling demonized and vilified, maybe for what she's done or what yeah. she wants to give other women the right to do. Yeah. And And there's no humanity in that. And it's really, really hard, especially with this issue right here. This is, you know, race is a tough one, and this is a really hard one. Yeah. And it's emotional. It elicits a lot of emotion on both sides. For myself as well, like I'm not, I'm not, you know, saying that I'm above all this. And it makes you angry when you hear the way some people talk, definitely. But I think on an individual level, those of us who consider ourselves to be believers, those of us who, who are followers of Christ, and we look at how Jesus engaged sinners, which we are, it was never void of truth, but it always and usually had compassion. The time when he wasn't compassionate is when he was dealing with the religious people. That's when he went out there really hard, the religious people. But when he saw the woman at the well and, you know, he saw the people, the list goes on and on. It wasn't that he was giving them a free pass at all. It wasn't that he was saying that, you know, they wouldn't have to pay for what they did. There wouldn't be consequence for their actions. None of that. He was giving truth. But he gave a lot of grace and he yeah. gave a lot of mercy and he gave a lot of compassion in the way he engaged. And I think that that's a template for us when it comes to this topic, especially. I'm not for, you know, just saying it doesn't matter. It matters greatly. The lives of the unborn matter greatly to me. They should matter to all of us. But all the lives, you know, the mothers, the fathers as well, the situations, I think it would help us in how we engage if we were able to understand them a little bit. So in the film, I, I don't have a lot of other voices because honestly, a lot of them didn't want to talk to me because yeah. <laughs> they knew where I stand. But the goal was to at least include some because it's vitally important that we hear their why. Yeah. 
Well, my sense in listening to that story is is that if uh, people were to ask those three women at the outset of the day if there's anything that changed their mind, all three of them would have said no. But your ability to engage uh, was obviously was material, and and yeah. So, Talia, so those are some very, very big topics that you've addressed through some great creative projects. Uh, do you have a sense about what's next? Well, promoting this film was next yeah. <laughs> immediately. Uh, Let's help you with that. Yeah, exactly. So we'll definitely be in touch when the film comes out. But uh, so there's that. There's, you know, I'm learning so much about raising money for finishing funds. And, you know, that that's part of it, too, which is totally foreign to me. But it's been a fun process. Of Tell us all, what's a, what's a finishing fund? Yeah, finishing fund is basically money that's used. Really, uh, a lot of it's for the editors. For the we have two great guys that are going through all these interviews and editing them. So we, we've got to pay them. We've also have to, you know, start a marketing plan and those yeah. sorts of things take money. We've got a, a pre-sale a theaters when the time comes. You know, so it's all those things that take in a film when you get to post-production, meaning that you're past the point where you're actually recording and filming. Now you're putting together the whole project to make it look like a movie yeah. Um, because it doesn't just look like a movie just after you film it. There's a bunch of work that has to be done. I've got to do voiceovers. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on of things that have to be done to make this a powerful moving film um, that will, that will address this issue in our culture. So there's you know a, a website for it. You can actually go to my website, which is the Watson seven.com. The Watson seven.com. The Watson7.com is my website, but within that, there's a Divided Hearts page on there where people can kind of see where we are. You can even yep. you know click to donate if you want to get involved with supporting us in this effort. Yep. That would be fabulous. So as far as what's next for us, we don't know exactly what it is, but Kirsten and I are in prayer right now about direction as to where we're, we think we're going to move out of the cold here in Boston and get down south where our family is. We're just trying to decide when to make that move. So yeah. The last place I want to go is uh, another project, of course, which is you're said to be a man of multiple jerseys, of course, but even more kids. So can you take it for a moment to your more recent book, The Dad's New Playbook? I, I know why this topic is so important to you, but what what can a reader of The Dad's New Playbook get? Yeah, so New Dad's Playbook is you know, gearing up for the biggest game of your life. Basically, New Dad's Playbook is what to expect when she's expecting for guys. After we probably had our third kid, second yeah. or third kid, my wife said, you know, you need to write a handbook for guys so they don't make all the mistakes you made. So they'll, <laughs> so, they'll know, so they'll know how to change the diaper. They'll know how to swaddle. They'll know what to expect when they go to the first OB appointment. They know what questions to ask. Yeah. So through the New Dad's Playbook, it's kind of like going through a season with the Super Bowl being the birth of your first child or second child or third child. doesn't matter. And within the book, it's really an encouragement to men that, number one, you're needed. About a third of our children now are being raised without fathers in their homes. There's a huge gap there. But really, when you talk about preparing a home for a child, it starts before the child even gets there. It starts with how you treat their mother and supporting her through this process and understanding the best way to lead and love when it comes to that. So it's part encouragement for men. Then it's also part, you know, education. So there are several terms from trimester to you name it that I talk about in the book just to give men an idea of what they're about to embark on. I remember being having my first child and I'm the oldest of six kids, but I never had a kid by myself on my own, my own kids. So there's a lot of things I didn't know just because yeah. you had brothers and sisters. I mean, you know, and so I was scared. Uh, I, 
don't know what questions to ask. I don't know what these things mean. I don't know why she wants me to go get, you know, ice cream for her in the middle of the night. I don't get it. How do I respond to that? So I talk about all those things within the book and um, really had a great response from a lot of men, a lot of women who have purchased the the book for their men, but also uh, just lots of men. I get messages just that it, you know, encourage them because there's an idea that men are aloof and incapable. And that's uh, not true. Benjamin, it's been great having you on the podcast and and so much truth here that you've unpacked with us. And what I love that you have pointed us back to multiple times here in our conversation is just the gospel. And you've pointed us back to how that is uh, the thing that we need to look at in each of these tough conversations. If you could, as we close out the podcast, just point us to where does God have you in this season? Is there a passage of scripture that it's come alive to you, maybe it's this morning or this week, that uh, is really speaking to you in the season. Yeah, well, this week, for those who are listening, you know, when we recorded it, this week is the week of Easter. And so this morning we were just, as a family, reading through the gospel account of Matthew of Jesus' crucifixion and just the torture and the unjust trial he endured and the fact that he did all those things for us and that it actually pleased the Father for him to do that. And it pleased the Father because of what it meant for sinners, what it meant for us. It meant that by Jesus' obedience to the Father's plan, we were be able to be right with him. We were were gonna have our relationship restored with our Creator. And it's an amazing, indescribable event in history that has ramifications today. The world has never known a love like that. There's been no love act that has ever happened that will come anywhere close to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so today, especially being Good Friday, um, just thinking about that and just realizing the ugliness of my sin, just that my sin isn't funny, it's not okay, it's not just because I'm a guy, you know, that it's okay for me to think this way or look at this or, you know, have lust in my heart or pride. Like, it's not okay. You know, Jesus went through torture because of my sin. That's what it cost. It cost death. And so I think today specifically, when you ask me that question, it's kind of a somber note, just realizing the gravity of my sin. And, but it's not without hope because we know that three days later, he rose in victory. And so we do have hope, but we don't understand the hope and we don't understand the victory if we don't understand the gravity of all that we've done and just our sin nature that separates us from God. Benjamin, so grateful for the time that you give us. I know there's probably some kids waiting downstairs, upstairs for you to rush back to them and take them through the next uh, game of PE or laser tag or whatever's on store this afternoon. But man, we are so grateful for the time. Thanks for uh, spending with us. Yes, we are. As a dad of three boys, I thank you for equipping me with a great articulation of over and over again about the gospel. None better than the last one you just shared about just understanding the gravity of our sin to be able to help us to understand the hope that we have. And that was it was really compelling. That was really, really good. I'm grateful for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm going to go to the website personally and fire it up to do what I can to support the movie you've got and just eager to just continue following what God's got you doing next. Thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate you guys and um, hopefully be in touch. As we finish up, we like to spotlight a ministry that is locking arms with our listeners. 
We know that many listening to the show are business owners and entrepreneurs looking to live out your faith in the marketplace. So this week, we want to make sure everyone knows about the Faith Driven Entrepreneur. It's a weekly podcast, a monthly newsletter, a daily blog, along with other video Bible studies and events that help you get provisioned for the journey you are on. Check it out at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. Thank you very much for joining us for today's show. The best way to stay connected with us is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenathlete.org. We're very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven community. Come check out our podcast at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org and also faithdriveninvestor.org. We, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see listeners coming to the sites from more than 100 countries. It's very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and that you'll share with others. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. 